be seated. Well, today is preaching our seventh sermon out of the series of eight on Elijah. Today's sermon is entitled, Is There No God? The big question mark. Let's pray. Most holy God, we're truly grateful for the opportunity this morning once again to learn more about the life of Elijah, what he faced, and Lord, there are so many lessons that we can learn from this small section in the Bible about this man, Elijah. Today I pray that we'll learn this valuable lesson. Taken from this simple question, is there no God? What a question we could ask many people. Is there no God? Well, surely we know there is a God. And I pray today we'll understand, Lord, something that we can learn about you and how our relationship with you is affected by what we learned today. So I thank you for this opportunity. I pray as we, we share together the word of God that we'll all learn and be able to encourage one another, the word of God, and that you'll be uh, honored, Father, with what we learned today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The story is told of a frog who went to see a fortune teller to learn about his future. And gazing into the crystal ball, the fortune teller said to the frog, You are going to meet a beautiful young woman. From the moment she sets eyes on you, she will have an insatiable desire to know all about you. She will be compelled to get close to you. You'll fascinate her. And excitedly, the frog said, where will I meet her, at a singles club? No, replied the fortune teller. You will meet her in a biology class. <laughs> Today, countless people seek to know the future, don't they? Newspapers and magazines carry horoscope columns. Television networks advertise psychic hotlines. Magazine racks and grocery stores check out counters offer paperback books on astrology and horoscopes and other occult subjects. The internet provides a vast array of merchandise for people who are curious about their securing uh, information about their fortune and their future. And to many, this hype may sound like sheer silliness and, and may appear to be nothing more than harmless fun. After all, what's so bad about reading your daily horoscope, right? But what we need to realize is that this is enemy territory. All this stuff related to the fortune telling is anything but silliness and harmless fun. As we will learn from our story today, God is not pleased when his people turn to, uh, turn to and trust in anyone or anything other than the living God. He wants us to learn to trust in him alone. Alone. As you will recall from our study of the life of Elijah thus far, Elijah's a wanted man. He's the uh, most wanted. Uh, there, if there were uh, criminal posters hanging from the trees, it had Elijah's picture on it, public enemy number one. 
The king was looking all over for Elijah. He had once delivered God's unwelcome message to the king, and as the lengthy drought began to take its toll, Elijah's name became a household word across the land of Israel, and Elijah became famous, but certainly not popular. And everybody, especially the king, wanted to get their hands on him. Elijah's heroic and successful showdown with the prophets of Baal and Asherah on Mount Carmel only intensified their desire to eliminate him. Remember, even Jezebel threatened him that she was going to do everything to him that he had done to them. And God protected Elijah, delivered him from who knows how many traps that had been slayed for him. And as we saw in our sermon last week, both Ahab and Jezebel finally went too far. Then God finished them off rather swiftly, just as God had predicted through Elijah. So we pick up today. The Bible says King Ahab died from an arrow that he received in battle, a wound that he received by that arrow. He was brought to Samaria and he was buried there in Samaria. And what they do? They washed the chariot at a pool of Samaria where the prostitutes bathed. Imagine that. That, that was where they washed his chariot. And what happened with the, the blood that was on the chariot? As it washed down, the dogs came and licked up the blood. Just as the word of God prevailed or declared would through Elijah. And Ahab rested with his fathers, it says, and his son Ahaziah succeeded him as king. Ahaziah reigned over Israel two measly years. He did evil, it says, in the eyes of the Lord because he walked in the ways of his father and mother and in the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. And how did he cause Israel to sin? He brought idolatry in there, and they never turned away from it the entire time the kings ruled the northern kingdom. He served and worshipped Baal, provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger just as his father had done. And we don't know how much else about his reign, but we are told about an accident he had in 2 Kings chapter 1. It reads in verses 1 and 2, Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. Now we can see Ahab dies and there's an immediate war going on. And Ahaziah fell through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and was injured. So he sent messengers and said to them, Go, inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this injury. Now, as you can see, the Bible doesn't give a lot of information about the accident. Perhaps he broke a leg or broke his back or damaged an internal organ in the fall. Maybe he was paralyzed. What is certain is that was some kind of serious injury or it resulted in a serious illness. And when the injured king realized he wasn't recovering, he got worried. And having been trained by his parents to handle such complications in life by consulting pagan deities, Ahaziah sought counsel from the god of Ekron, hoping that that god would tell him if he would recover from the injury. And Ekron was one of the five major Philistine cities and was a city known for its practice of divination. 
And apparently the god Beelzebub was housed there. The name Beelzebub is a combination of two Hebrew words. Baal, which means Lord or God, and Zebub in noun form means fly. Together, the two words would mean God of the fly or Lord of the fly. And Old Testament scholars have many different theories about the god Beelzebub. All we know for sure is that this fly god was housed at Ekron and was believed to speak about the future through its seers and witches and priests. The only time the name Beelzebub appears in the Old Testament is in this chapter of 2 Kings, where it appears four times. And in all four places, it refers to the same false deity, the God of Ekron. Now, the name does appear again, however, in the New Testament, in the Greek form of Beelzebub. And the Pharisees did not believe that the power of Jesus was from God. Rather, they credited Jesus' power to Beelzebub, who was the ruler of the demons. Are you getting a clear picture who we're talking about here? So Ahaziah, when seeking to know about his future, turned to Beelzebub. And some people today might say, as they certainly did in Elijah's day, Oh, what's the harm? That God is just a piece of stone or wood. It's not alive. And that is certainly true. As far as the physical object itself. But the problem has to do with what that object represents. And especially what it does to the idol worshiper. Now if you were coming to Sunday school and you heard me teaching all these weeks about 1 Corinthians especially chapter 10, this is all going to sound like all old hat to you. You see, the idol itself is just a piece of matter. But through the act of worship, it becomes a point of residency for the demonic world. This object that is worshipped, consulted, and sacrificed to is nothing in and of itself, but it can become the breeding ground for the whole world of demonic powers. Paul explained this when he wrote in the Corinthians uh, many centuries later, in ten, chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians 19 through 20 said this. What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No! But I say to you that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have a part in sharing with demons. Well, you might think it's, oh, it's just a simple piece of wood or a simple rock. They're not really worshiping anybody. Behind that rock, behind that piece of wood, think about it, standing a demon. And that's where you're putting your worship when you idol worship. And we wonder why God hates idolatry, why God gets so angry with idol worship. Because people are worshiping demons instead of worshiping God. And that's why God stepped in. When Ahaziah sent his messengers to consult with the god of Ekron, that the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. 
So Elijah departed. So when we see that God quickly dispatched his prophet to the scene of the intercept Ahaziah's messengers, and God did not want them to have any contact with the demon-inspired God of Ekron, so God told Elijah to stop them from making that journey and told them this. It's because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron. And it's amazing how quickly God sometimes acts, isn't it? Here was Ahaziah confined to his bed. He was not recovering from the injury, and he wanted to know his future. And the Lord quickly stepped in and let him know that his very decision to go to a false god would seal his fate. He would not recover. Here you go, Ahaziah. Here's your future. You shall surely die. I wonder if we could use that on people out there with them to Jesus. Is there no God in the universe that you call upon demons? Well, here's your future. You shall surely die. You're on your way to hell if you don't choose Jesus. If you don't change your mind about God. Now, maybe that seems a little harsh. So we, uh, we don't go out there and do that. But truly, people who want to know their future, that's the future. That's our future. If we have yet to change our mind about God, accepting Jesus through faith, repenting of our sins, confessing the name of Jesus, being immersed in the watery grave, and we haven't done that. That's our future. And eternity in hell. I can't change that. People get so concerned. It's like you had this, this choice. You had the decision what your address is going to be all the time you walked on this earth. God's not going to send you there. He's carrying out the punishment that you chose. You chose to go to heaven or to go to hell. And on the day of judgment, all God's going to do is carry out your wishes. That could have easily been said to Ahaziah. He would not recover. It says in verse 5, The messengers returned to him. He said to them, Why have you come back? And they said to him, A man came up to meet us and said to us, Go, return to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord, It is because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baals above the God of Ekron. Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up but you shall surely die. Imagine how much the messengers wanted to tell that to the king. In this case, they were probably glad that he was bedridden and couldn't come after him. Because I'm sure that's not something that would have pleased him. And he said to them, what kind of man was it who came up to meet you and told you these words? I have to laugh when I see that. It's like, well, who was the man? Like, well, maybe he was wrong. It's, wait a minute, he quoted God. Thus says the Lord. What does it matter who the man is? And they answered him, oh, he was a hairy man. I love this part too. He wore a leather belt around his waist. That was the best description they could come up with? A hairy man who wore a leather belt around his waist. But you know what? Ahaziah knew who it was, he said. 
It is Elijah the Tishbite, public enemy number one. Ahaziah's message is returned. They told it to the king. And at this point, Ahaziah had only one question. What kind of man was this? He had heard all about this thorn in the flesh prophet from his mother and father. And here was Elijah being a thorn in the flesh with him. It goes on to say in verse 9, The king sent to him a captain of 50 and his 50 men. And he went up to him and there, was, there he was sitting on the top of a hill. And he spoke to him, Man of God, the king has said, Come down. And Elijah answered and said to the captain of 50, If I am a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. And he sent him another captain of 50 with 50 men. And he answered and said to him, Man of God, thus says the king, come down quickly. And Elijah answered and said, If I am a man of God, I like it because he says a man. They keep saying the man. Remember that lesson way back when? Elijah thought he was the only one. And God told him, I have reserved 7,000 who haven't bowed the name, their knee to Baal. I think Elijah got that. He calls himself a man of God. In other words, I'm not the only one. He said, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Now, at what point would you think, hey, maybe we should stop this whole 50 thing? Again, in verse 13, he sent a third captain of the 50 with his 50 men. And the third captain of the 50 went up. He learned something. And he went and he fell on his knees before Elijah and pleaded with him and said to him, Man of God, please. Let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. And the angel of the Lord God said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baals above, the God of Ekron, is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And Ahaziah died according to the word of the Lord which Elijah had spoken. Because he had no son, Jehoram became king in his place. In the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. You see, at this point, God gave Elijah more instruction. The scripture says the angel of the Lord said, Go down, don't be afraid. I find it interesting. It's like... Ahaziah wouldn't believe this until he heard the word from the horse's mouth, so to speak. I want to hear Elijah say it. Did it change anything? I find it interesting. If you knew you were going to die, wouldn't you be begging for your life? Wouldn't you say something? It seems interesting nothing's recorded. That he was begging to Elijah to spare his life. You know, fearlessly, Elijah went to Ahaziah and confronted him face to face. Picture Elijah standing before the young king just as he stood before his father Ahab. Picture the young king surrounded by armed warriors ready to finish off Elijah. 
upon the king's order. Nevertheless, Elijah, the courageous man of God, did what? As we've been talking about, he stood alone in the gap. What can one person do for God when God's on their side? Just read the life of Elijah. He went alone and stood in the gap. And the Lord spoke his rebuke through Elijah. And the Lord rebuked Ahaziah for approaching a false god for the help that he should have only sought from the Lord God. Now listen again to Elijah's piercing question. Is there no God in Israel that you must seek help from this God of Ekron? Because you have turned to this false god, you will never recover but will surely die. And so he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. I think of this in contrast to the southern king Hezekiah. King Hezekiah uh, was to a point that he was supposed to die, and he prayed to who? The god of Ekron? Baalzebub? No. He prayed to the Lord God and asked that God might spare his life. And the prophet came back to Hezekiah and said, God has given you 15 more years to get your affairs in order. 15 more years Hezekiah got to live to serve God before he died. What a contrast in two different kings and where they went for help. You see, I want us to understand this. God means what he says and keeps his word. God has never changed. He means what he says. He says what he means and he keeps his word. Even in 2021. Because God doesn't change. So I want us to understand that God wants us to turn to him in everything. He wants us to turn to him with everything. And what does that, what's that called? called trust it's called trust is there not a God in Israel that we would call on someone else no there is a God in Israel there's the only God and we call upon him in everything that's called trust we put our trust in God in what everything Everything. And how do we do that? How do we do that? We put our trust in God in prayer. We put our trust in God in prayer. He said, well, isn't that the problem with Ahaziah? Who did he pray to? The God of Ekron. Baal's above. You're looking over to carrying in the New Testament. We think it seems to appear it's the, the leader of the demons, which is who? Satan. Go ahead and pray to Satan and see where that gets you. Ahaziah. And they called Elijah a crazy man. We should put our trust in God in everything, in prayer. There's told the true story of a small town in Kentucky which had two churches and one bar owned by a devout and well-known atheist. It seems that one night the people from the two churches called a special prayer meeting, spent the whole night praying 
that the bar would close down. Well, lo and behold, that very night, around midnight, a storm blew in and lightning struck the bar and burned it down to the ground. Well, the churches were elated. But obviously, the atheist who owned the bar wasn't. And to make matters worse, the insurance company told the bar owner they wouldn't cover the damages because it was an act of God, not covered by the company. So the owner took the two churches to court to sue them for damages, which they claimed they weren't responsible for. And the presiding judge said, and I quote, like I said, this is a true story. It's in the law books, and here's what the judge said. This is the most perplexing case I have ever sat on because on one hand, I have an atheist who claims to believe in the power of prayer, and on the other hand, I have two churches that deny it. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> is that not crazy? I wonder how that looked out on the church marquee. We're the church that does not believe in prayer. So says judge so-and-so. I wonder sometimes if I were on trial. If my belief in the power of prayer were on trial, would I be guilty or not guilty? Really, we claim to believe that prayer works, that prayer changes things, that prayer has power, but do we really truly believe what we say? What we claim, do we really believe in the power of prayer? I'm not so sure sometimes. I think that we unfortunately have a faulty view of prayer. And the faulty view is this. We often view prayer as a people as the last resort, the last option among many options. And so we say things like this. Well, poor Aunt Susie had really been suffering lately. She tried everything to get better. She, she's gone to the doctor. She's taken pill after pill. She's even tried strapping on magnets, but nothing else seems to be working. So I guess all we have left to do is to pray for her. Or we hear something going through a tough time, and, and we ask if there's anything we can do for them. And they say, no, there's really nothing you can do. Thanks anyway. And then we say, well, I guess I can at least pray for you. At least, is that the least we can do for them, or is that the most we can do for them? You see, so often prayer is a last resort, a last option. It's something we hope we, that will bail us out in tough times when nothing else seems to be working. But prayer is intended to be much more than that, isn't it? Ahaziah sought to essentially pray and worship the God of Ekron. He sent messengers to inquire if he would get well. But it was the God who delivers the dreadful words through the prophet Elijah. The God. Is there no God in Israel that you went to Baalzebub of Ekron? You can bet right now there is one God in Israel and this is what he said. I can't help but think, you know, when you think about something like this. You have a serious illness. You need an orthopedic surgeon. And you go down to a little guy down the street who's in his first year of medical school. And you can say, is there no good orthopedic surgeon in this town that you went there? Really? 
Your leg's about to fall off. And you go to the butcher down the street. I mean, that's really kind of what we're saying here, isn't it? You think the butcher guy down the street's going to help you save your leg. You think praying to an idol is going to help save your life. How'd you get that life? It came from the creator, the giver of life, the God. Now, did you catch the recurring, the recurring question that runs throughout today's scripture? It's an important question. It's asked by the Lord initially in verse 3, and the messenger repeats in verse 4, and Elijah asks it in verse uh, 16. Is it because there is no God in Israel? You know, I wonder if God asks the same question of us. I wonder if God looks at me and asks me that question. Tom, is it because there is no God in your life that you have to turn to everything else before you turn to me? Does God have reason to ask that question of you? Is it because there is no God in your life that you turn to everything else before you turn to me? Husbands, wives, is it asking that question of you? You're tired of arguing, you're tired of fighting, you're tired of feeling alone and depressed. You know that something has to be done if your marriage is going to survive. And so you turn to self-help books, to counselors, to videos and seminars and conferences, retreats, and on and on the list goes. And the whole time God is saying, is there no God in your marriage? That you've turned to all these other things before you've turned to me in prayer. High schoolers, college students, juniors, whatever, is he asking that question of you? You're having a tough time in school with your grades, your friends. You work hard on the ball field, in the classroom, in the relationships, but it seems like nothing ever works for you. And so you turn to your friends to ask for their help. You turn to teachers or parents. You begin blaming other people for your problems. And on and on the whole thing, the whole time God say, is there not a God in your life that you have to turn to all these other things before you turn to me in prayer? And leaders, elders, deacons, teachers, preacher, is he asking us that question? We make important decisions as to the direction and vision of the church. We decide how to spend the money, what to allow and disallow. We are called upon to the examples of faith to shepherd and lead God's people. And so we turn to our business manuals and our financial reports and our experiences. And the whole time God is asking, is there no God in the church? That you have to turn to all these other things before you turn to me in prayer. And I could go on and on with all this. And when we struggle to overcome and sin in our life, when we have loved ones who are sick and hurting, when we are sick and hurting ourselves, when we have financial hardships, when we have struggles and battles to face at home or at work or in our family, and so often we turn to everyone else, everything else before we turn to God in prayer, and God may be saying the same thing to us. Because there is no God in your life that you will not turn to me in prayer first. See, it's not to say that some of those other things are bad. Counselors, books, other Christians, those are good things to turn to, certainly. But when God is saying to King Ahaziah and all, to, and all of us, is he wants us to be his first option. we got to think of God first, the first option, before we turn to anything else, before we go anywhere else. God wants us to turn to him in prayer, ask for his strength, his guidance, his protection. In all things. How do you know you're going to the right counselor? If you haven't asked first of God, the true counselor, to send you to the right counselor. But so often, 
We're like a soldier who goes into battle. He's loaded down with weapons to fight the enemy. He has hand grenades and machine guns and knives, but he's still not satisfied with all those things. He complains that he needs more, that he is not fully loaded down with enough to take out the enemy. Yet the whole time sitting right beside him is a nuclear weapon, a weapon that could take out the entire enemy with one blow. And so we stand there as that soldier. We stand there as King Ahaziah, turning and trusting in all the lesser things. When the whole life, the whole while, we have in our grasp, in our reach, the most powerful weapon the world has ever seen. We have access to the creator of the universe. We have access to the great God who was and is and is to come. The one who has seen the past, knows the present, and can see the future. And despite having access to such a great and loving God who cared about us so much that he sent his one and only son, we would rather turn elsewhere before we turn to God. Perhaps the wisdom of Abraham Lincoln should be our wisdom as well. And Abraham Lincoln once quoted this, I have been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. My own wisdom and that of those about me seemed insufficient for the day. And even greater words of wisdom are given to us by Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. To him who knocks, the door will be opened. So let me ask you. How's your prayer life? How's your prayer life? Take a good long look into yourself and ask that question. How is my prayer life? I want to close with four scriptures here. The first one is on there. Luke 18 verses 1 and verse 8. And Jesus spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. And in verse 8, he says, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? What's he talking about? He's talking about, will he really find faith on the earth for people to pray? Will they have enough faith to pray to the Father? That's a sad thought to think when Jesus comes back, he's asking the question, will there still be enough faith? Will there still be people who believe enough to be praying. Always ought to pray, Jesus said. He doesn't give us certain reasons to pray, but always. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. If you ever want to know what some of the will of God is for you in your life, right there it says. Re rejoice always. That means even in the tough times we rejoice because of God. Number two, we pray without ceasing. In other words, don't stop. In everything give thanks, everything, even the tough times. And for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. How about 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8? Paul told Timothy, 
Pray everywhere. Pray everywhere. When you're sitting in that traffic jam in your car, pray. When you're sitting at the restaurant waiting for your meal, pray. <coughs> I don't know about you. We always sit down and pray at mealtime, at home, in the restaurant, wherever. I have never once, in all my years as a Christian, sitting in a restaurant praying where somebody came over and insulted me about having prayer. But I've been complimented many times. I'll be honest, down here, down south, I hear more people praying at mealtime than they ever did up north. That's, that's encouraging. Pray everywhere. And then James 5.17 says this. Pray earnestly. I can't help but that. That means with heart. With fervor. Like Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane with fervor. So his blood was, or his sweat was like great drops of blood. I don't know about you, but I don't think I've ever prayed so hard that I sweated blood let alone sweat at all that means to me that you're giving to your very all in prayer you're letting God know I want an answer to this prayer nevertheless not my will as Jesus said but yours be done so I'm willing to accept your answer but this is what I want I read of a preacher who would sit down to eat at the dinner table with his wife and one and a half year old daughter and and as they were constant or as was their constant way they would pray and thank God for their meal. Well, little kids don't miss anything. After a year and a half of watching them do this, their daughter Lily learned how to go through the motions. And so it was when they all would sit down at the table as soon as dad would say, "Let's pray," she would automatically bow her head and after the prayer was finished, she would say, "Amen." And if she was really hungry, then she would say amen before the prayer was finished, hoping to speed things up a little bit. And of course, mom and dad get the biggest kick out of seeing her do this. But as the preacher wrote, he was thinking, as cute as this is, I hope, your, hope our daughter doesn't see prayer or something we only do at the dinner table. I hope she doesn't gain such a limited view of prayer. I hope that she comes to see that prayer is not something we pull out of a box only at the dinner table or when we have turned everywhere else or only when we really are desperate. I hope she understands that prayer is something God wants us to do continually. So let me ask you, does your family know you believe in prayer? Do you pray at mealtimes even if they aren't interested? Do you tell them that you are praying for them through their illness and struggles and trials? Do they hear that? You pray for them. Do you, your lost friends know you believe in prayer and pray for them as well? And I think God, I know God, wants all of us to understand that he wants us to turn to him with the small things and the big things and the large and the little. In all things and in all situations of life, God wants us to turn to him before we turn anywhere else. In fact, you know what I would love God to say to me? Instead of asking me that condemning question, is there no God in your life? You've turned to everything else before you've turned to me. I'd rather hear him ask this of me. Tom, you are a man, a husband, a father, a minister who turned to me before he turned to anywhere else. And I hope that becomes true in my life. And I hope it becomes true in yours.
that you turn to God before you turn anywhere else. I don't know what more I can say after saying all that. And you're probably thinking, I'm glad because I want to get out of here. I'm glad the preacher's done talking. Prayer is important. Always has been. And I believe it always will be. If Jesus was concerned whether he'd find faith on this earth to pray, obviously prayer is pretty important. And in all the things there, we've read, pray always, pray without ceasing, pray about everything. That tells us what God thinks about prayer, doesn't it? Because, see, we are putting our trust in the one who can answer our prayers. You know what I'm saying? I've told you this many times. Put God to the test regarding your money, right? Your giving. I told you, put him to the test and see if his shovel's not bigger than yours. You give 10%. Watch if God doesn't give it back to you in ways that you didn't even know. But I also want to tell you, put God to the test in your prayer life. And keep an open eye and watch how God begins to answer your prayers. And take time to praise Him and keep praying to God. The things I've seen God do over the years in prayer have truly amazed me. And still, I know I have so much more to learn about prayer. I've said this after many years of attending the National Prayer Clinic in Grundy, Virginia. The second week in October is this. First, I was like, why do they have this every year? That seems crazy. 20 messages on prayer? And after a few times of going, it's like, wow, it's no wonder they have that 20 messages is nothing on prayer. I've been going to this five, 10 years, 20, that's 200 messages on prayer. Wow! There's so much more still to learn. That's why they have the prayer clinic every year. Because prayer never gets old. God wants you to pray. And if you haven't accepted Jesus, let me tell you this. Don't listen to what people say out there. You say the sinner's prayer. There is no such thing. You will not find that in the Bible. But I told you earlier how to become a Christian. That's how you do it. Not saying the sinner's prayer. You get to become a Christian by your faith. Be willing to repent, confess the name of Jesus, and be baptized, be immersed in the water of grains. Where Acts 2.38 says, God washes away your sin and fills you with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then watch how your prayer life changes. The way of the cross leads on, page 374. The hymn of invitation, any decision to make for Jesus, you come. As we sing, verses 1 to 3. Needs go home by the way of the cross. There's no other way but through. I shall never get excited of the gates of life. In the way of the cross, I miss. The way of the cross leads home. The way of the cross leads home. It is sweet. Oh,
grateful for the opportunity to be together today, for our time to worship, to fellowship, to share our offering, to sing praises and pray, to hear the word preached, and truly to remember your son around his table. What a wonderful day it's been. As we leave this place, I pray, Lord, we are encouraged by prayer and about prayer, what it means to us to put our trust in you. And you, Lord, will take care of us. Help us go from this place and share those words with others, Lord, that there is a God, and you are awesome. Thank you, Lord, for your blessings. Please keep us safe. Protect us all. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.